This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today we have a very exciting episode where we are taken into a philosophical exploration of the increasingly contradictory face of modern sport. On one hand, there is the positive impact of sport, which is seen in different areas of our society. But on the other hand, we so frequently hear about the abuse and misconduct in sport, including sexual harassment, doping and corruption. How can we make sense of these contradictory trends? And how can a philosophical analysis help us to vision a more balanced future for sport? Our guest today is Dr. Sandra Mervsen, who has worked in various vital positions in sport since the early 1990s. She obtained her PhD last year at the Faculty of Philosophy and Moral Sciences at the Ria University, Brussels, with the thesis a critique of sportive reason, a philosophical archaeology of modern sport. In her thesis, she drew on Foucault, Agamben and Spinoza to analyze our knowing about what sport is or should be and the shifts in this knowledge we've had since the rise of modern sport to its current existence. I'm personally very much looking forward to hearing more about this exciting work, so I will shut up now and let our guest take us to a journey of exploration. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Sandra, and thank you for finding the time for our conversation. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You defended your PhD uh, thesis last year, but before that you obviously worked worked in sport in various roles for a very long time, and you've also been an athlete yourself. So it would be really wonderful to hear first about your own journey in sport and and the observations you've had that led you to write uh, this PhD thesis that we will explore more today. Yes, I'll take it from here. Thank you so much again. Um, Yes, I've been an... uh, an athlete for uh, about 20 years, practicing uh, athletics in the field and the pitch, and um, running marathons. Later on, I stepped, I developed into a triathlon because uh-huh. of a mountaineering accident, which may interest you with your own history in mountaineering. <laughs> Yeah, I had an accident in the uh, Italian Alps. I was 25. I was in the middle of my athletic career, to be honest. So it was uh, a summer holiday, but we tried to 
to take some uh, advantage of uh, mountaineering around uh, 3,000 meters, so in in height. <laughs> right, yeah. And there was this um, avalanche with um, rocks. It was in the summer of 1991, to be honest. And mm. uh, I was hit by a rock of around one to two meters. And my left uh, leg was broken in, in three uh, important uh, areas. So, it, to be honest, it was a, a nearly death experience at 25. Yeah. And it changed my life completely because it turned out that I wasn't so strong as I imagined to be because of my athletic career and all the performances I already had gathered. So it made me very vulnerable. I, in a way, I touched the bottom and had to rise up again, uh, reintegrating, re trying to be um, to walk again. It started with learning to walk again, and then in the end, I I could uh, ride a bicycle, swim a little, and that made the idea come up to try uh, triathlon, and it. Uh, it uh, appeared to be uh, much more successful. It, it, it fits me much more than uh, uh, merely athletics, merely running. So I turned out to be a, a really good multi-sport, enduring uh, sport uh, athlete. So I, 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 I went into competition for another five years. Was at around the 10th um, spot in the Netherlands uh, on the ladies' side. But yeah. triathlon is a, is a, is a sport, uh, a type of sport in which you cannot hide. You need to be very determined. And I, I, my, my workouts deferred from 9 to 12 a week, three times swimming, three times running, three times cycling, and some power lifting. And so to be honest, it was like professional a professional career. Yeah, it does sound like full-time work. Yeah. But in this in the same time I grew up, I was educated as an academic uh, philosopher. At 24, I I received my master. This came together in my first job, which was at the Dutch Olympic Committee. I was a believer in practicing athletics and endurance sport. I, I was so de almost addicted to uh, practicing sport myself. And then I got employed to policy making for the Dutch Olympic Committee and the Dutch Sport Federation. So this is a combined organization in which we cared for elite sports, of course, preparing mm -hmm. for the Olympics, all the policy making that is, is uh, presupposed, talent development, about the facilities and the financial circumstances, of course. But the other dimension, I should call grassroots sports. I was involved as well, and it's about creating optimal circumstances for clubs to grow and to stay healthy. Uh, education, professionalization, the quality of trainers and coaches and facilities as well. So I was a general policy manager, you could call it. And I was 
I increasingly um, came involved with politics, the governmental issues around sports in the Netherlands. Yeah, and mm. uh, during those years, I, I worked at the Dutch Olympic Committee for uh, 12 years. Increasingly, became aware of this, as you named it, as, as you um, indicated in your introduction, this ambiguous two-sided face of modern sports. On the one hand, we were every day engaged and determined to communicate the values of sport, all the positive supposed effects which I knew myself, morally, uh, the, the ethical core of sports, so to say. But on the other hand, there was every day, I would say, interferences, all kinds of incidents, temptations. And this had to do with an intern tension about positions, about interests. So a continuous struggle inside the very heart of these institutions. And it made me more and more confused and in a way also, I would say, frustrated. I cannot find a, a more decent word, but yeah. in, in despair, in despair, in despair, because yeah. I wanted to stress the positive aspects of sport it was my mission huh, as a youngster yeah. in my 20s and I was so convinced of the um, positive impact of sport and then I came to work in a surrounding in which there was a continuous tension and striving and I would say the downside of sport there's a there's an upside <laughs> Mm -hmm. And this is about all these positive values we um, address to modern sports. But there's also a downside. In my thesis, I used the chess pool for this. A chess pool in which, you know what this means? Yeah, you can explain a bit more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a hole in the ground <laughs> where things disappear. Originally, it's about things we now can leave in the toilet. That's a chess pool. But mm. as you might know, people throw all kinds of things in the chess pool. Also, uh, waste or... But anyway, the chess pool for me is just a metaphor for this downside. And yeah. it appeared to me that the downside is always there. I was intrigued by the um, interference between the positive upside of sport versus the yeah, influences, manifestations from the downside. Uh, in, in 2007, I chose an independent position in the field of uh, sport. And I uh, started my own uh, company in consultancy, change manage management and research. And from that time on, I reactivated my philosophical uh, background, my knowledge. And I began reading again, like at that time, popular uh, philosophers and some historical works again. So it made me very sensitive again for this, I would say, double-sided character of modern sports. And I began to reflect about it, write about it, talk about it with peers. So I gathered a group of young philosophers in sport in the Netherlands, a new generation, yeah. I would say. And we, we, we started meetings uh, once in two months. 
and we shared new insights, new readings. So it became, so to say, a research group. And it was not institutionalized yet. <laughs> we took some time and we're all starting to um, do doctoral researches. And I'm, I'm the second to have passed my thesis now. The first was Ron Welters. You might know him as well. He, he wrote a thesis on sustainable philosophy of endurance sport. Cycling for life. So mm. this is our group. And during my consultancy years, I, I could pick up different positions. So not only at national level, but also inside of uh, municipalities. And this is uh, an area I like very much because you're so near to grassroots sports. And it helps a lot to see what's happening in the practice of sport. Hmm. So these are all together, but I also, I also advised and supported um, sport federations in governance issues, the Ministry of Sport in developing uh, policy and evaluation uh, research. So all kinds of different um, tasks and this helped me to build up an empirical, <laughs> an empirical, um, yeah, database, you might say. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just working experience from inside institutions that should stimulate modern sports. So this is a unique proxi proximity to praxis. And I wanted to use this proximity in a pure and proper way, suitable way for my philosophical research, which is not very common. <laughs> a philosophical uh, doctoral research, most of the time, is only a conceptual analysis. Yeah, yeah. thank you for sharing the background. And I, I fully agree with you that since you worked in the field so much and, and you have all this experience and the constant interaction with the field, so to speak. So it really gives you a different angle to analyzing these philosophical questions yes. and, and using these concepts. And I think that's really valuable. And I'm also very excited to hear that you actually have a group of yeah. sport philosophers and you are having these conversations because, we do. Mm -hmm. yeah, philosophy of sport is certainly, well, in my view, we have way too little philosophy if mm. we think of sports science institutions and in in many universities in which have sports sciences they don't have anyone who is addressing philosophical questions no, so. no. there's too little in the netherlands yeah in the netherlands as well eh? the, the position of the philosophy of sport is very vulnerable to be honest and uh, there's no funding there's no position uh, like a professor anywhere so so we're yeah. trying to um, regain position. There used yeah. to be a good position at the uh, Free University of Amsterdam, but it was related to human movement sciences. And I find this, it's, it's very um, understandable that the philosophy of sports starts at human movement sciences, but I find it rather um, vulnerable. <laughs> because you yeah. really need the um, the attackment in proper philosophy, the, the faculty of philosophy, and 
this is this is uh, a form of criticism, science criticism in uh, the philosophy of sport. I think we we need to to be very careful. No, we we need to constantly rediscover, reconsider our ontological presuppositions. And to me, it seems as if this is implicit. And uh, I feel a task of rediscovering the roots of our knowing in in the, the field of knowing of sport philosophy. And I think this will nicely lead into your doctoral work that you've, yeah. you've fairly recently completed and and you started already talking about critically examining our ways of knowing and and so maybe we can move to how did you narrow your focus of your of your work and and what were really the key things that you wanted to understand with this PhD thesis? Yeah. As I already stated, it all started with a kind of, I was wondering how this ambiguous character of modern sport could appear. And I was interested in new ways of comprehending uh, this dual character of sports because of the growing, I would say, increasingly excessive dimension of modern sports. And people don't like it if you put light to the downside. But I had this intuition that it is needed, it is necessary to gain a deeper comprehension of uh, this almost uh, contradictory character of modern sports. The beautiful face versus the ugly face. And this had to do with the year of 2016 in which there were several major issues, the Russian doping uh, affair in the Netherlands. We we had a start with the gymnastics, sexual harassment uh, issues, and so on, and so on. It didn't stop. <laughs> yeah, it still doesn't stop. It still doesn't mm-hmm. stop. So yeah, it's like this chess pool is, is flowing. And I had yeah. the intuition that this uh, is somehow related to the way we think about sports. The things we find most important we validate in our research and in our definitions of modern sports versus Mm -hmm. the things we do not think about. We exclude from the body of knowledge about modern sports. And in this, this tension, my research develops. So a tension between reality, I would say. (laughs) You might qualify my research as new materialism i just recognize the reality in modern sport as it is and it is almost unbearable excessive versus the what i call the field of knowing about sports and this is this is really inspired by the works of michel foucault he did the same thing for psychiatry and the healthcare system and the prison system so mm-hmm. i thought yeah. well Let's let's try <laughs> and apply this way of archaeology to modern sports. Yeah. Can you explain just a little bit more? So your method is something that is called philosophical archaeology. Yes. What, what do you do 
with that approach? Archaeology in this context is about knowledge, about uncovering the original foundation, I would say. The Greek word for this is episteme, which Foucault uses as well. The episteme, underneath, it's not really underneath, but it's it's everyday working for us. But the episteme that produces our knowledge about modern sports. And philosophical archaeology is about trying to discover this episteme. And to do so, Foucault really digged in archives. He, is an, he was a historian. It's not my uh, background. I'm a philosopher. So what I did was I gathered all kinds of documents, crucial documents, I would say, about modern sports. For instance, the Olympic Charter. Some primal texts by Pierre de Coubertin about yeah. Uh, the modern Olympics through time. I took, uh, I picked out Homo Ludens, the wonderful book about culture and play, written by Johan Huizinga, a Dutch historian, and very central, I think, in our thinking about our conceptualizing of modern sports. And these more, I would say, international sources, milestones surrounded with more informal sources like biographies of athletes, coaches, executives, but also uh, documentaries. For instance, the one about Maradona or in, in the Netherlands, we had a wonderful documentary about two Dutch and gymnastic young boys and their experience. And all these sources together are what I call an archive. And of course, one could object, is this archive complete? Is it representative? All these, yeah. you know, the, the regular questions in social sciences. Yeah. Uh, my answer would be very Foucauldian, that in fact, the body of knowledge about uh, the philosophy of sport is apparent in every single expression because even i would say a social media account contains what we want to say about sport the things we we affirm the values we affirm about sport for instance its playfulness versus the values and qualities we rather ignore so there's always uh, the positive all the activities and qualities we constantly validate versus I would say the negative, the unknown uh, about sports. And archaeology is about uncovering this, yeah, I would say division. Uh, because there's always a starting point in which this division is made. And in my uh, research, I address, I would say, the birth of modern sport. Yeah. I situate it at the end of the 19th century which is not so very uh, innovative because of the uh -huh. start of the modern Olympic. But, right. but there, was, there was an integration of, I would say, the, the, the British development. We call it sportification in the, in the public yeah. schools and the, from the education system. And the um, intention to reactivate, I would say, the, the ancient values as the Coubertins saw them in the ancient Greek Olympics. And this came together in the birth of modern Olympic Games. But this is also the very moment in which this, what I would say, epistemic split was born. 
And I, in my thesis, I argue there's a split between, I would say, the more vitalistic, positive expectations, desire concerning modern sport, that it would revitalize society and all the people involved, versus, of course, an economic positivism, which had to do with the uh, acceleration of industrialization at the time. And so there's there's always this split underneath our field of knowledge about modern sports. And as we now notice in these years, in the 21st century, uh, it's a struggle because there's always the prevalence of more, I would say, disciplinary economic powers at the expense of the more precious original values that carry sport, carry modern sport. And these were the values that de Coubertin installed, but he didn't really succeed to keep them going, to to keep them in the first place. Yeah, so there has been some sort of decline from what he would have hoped to envision sport and how it has played out the way we are now thinking about sport and and the way we are doing sport in our cultures. And it's not a personal decline. It's a systemic one. Mm -hmm. So it's not that he didn't succeed as a a human being, but we didn't succeed as, I would say, the community of modern sports. We didn't succeed. We were, and, and here comes my, Uh, second very important uh, pillar (laughs) source uh, underneath my doctoral research, I took inspiration from psychoanalytical philosophers, mainly Jacques Lacan, the French philosopher. And it's all about what we uh, look for in modern sports. And he would say, it's all about desire. It's about fulfilling a hidden desire, a desire that uh, may not be there in daily life, but that still influences our behavior in all kinds of ways. It's a rather common uh, narrative in modern sports, I would say, especially popular in a more informal setting as an excuse for excessive behavior. Oh, I need it because I'm not so happy with my wife or my, my friend at home. So I need to go on the bike and make my my days outside in a way to legitimize the more i would say again this i don't know uh, a different word but the um, this extra source helped me to understand why we were so willing to hand modern sports as a beautiful practice over to the more economic powers because Hmm. we are all in a way attacked to this practice and uh, the attackment is mostly very personal and even for the Coubertin (laughs) to make it again a little bit personal it seems as if he he was also in a quest for fulfillment an existential quest I would say and Hmm. there came the opportunity for the modern Olympics. And in psychological terms, there was this transference of his demand, his lack, to the practice evolving. And this is a new way of understanding what what sport is all about. And it makes it more comprehensive why we are so weak, I would say, in 
keeping up the ethical core. You have now reached the end of the first part of our conversation. Stay tuned for the second part of this episode. And meanwhile, you can find more information and relevant links for this and the other Meaningful Sport episodes at the MeaningfulSport.com website. I hope you found this podcast worth of your time and let us know if you have any comments or thoughts. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.